we are finishing up. In fact, we've just got a couple more sermons in our series that we've entitled Ready. And uh, as I shared with you uh, last week, uh, in the weeks to come, we'll be starting a series on relationships, learning how our lives are filled with all kinds of relationships and how those relationships are to honor God no matter what relationship they are, whether friendships or marriage, whether our relationship with our children, our relationship in the workplace, our relationship in, in the church, all of those must live out certain characteristics, certain attributes that give the glory and honor to God in all that we say and do as we interact with people. But as we come to the end of this series, we come to Paul's last chapter of the second letter that he's written. We've been in this series now for some time. Since the beginning of the year, we have been learning on what it means to be ready, transformed by the grace and, and truth of the gospel, and now propelled into the world, uh, into a world that at times is difficult, in a world that at times seems to be having the upper hand. God has called us as Christians to be ready, to serve him, to honor him, uh, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with all those we come into contact with, and Paul is finishing his letter, and he gives us a reminder this morning that none of that will be possible, that none of that readiness will allow for any life change in our lives or in the lives of those around us to take place unless we spend some time doing what Paul had come to recognize was the lifeblood of his life and ministry, and that was prayer. Paul, in the beginning of chapter 3, takes a moment and reminds them the importance of prayer. And that's what I want to do this morning, is share on the subject of prayer from these first five verses. And what I'm going to do is just as a way of uh, kind of preparing you, uh, there's nothing worse than a pastor preaching about prayer and then not praying, right? Right? And so at the end of this service, we're going to take a little time, and, and we're just going to have a mini prayer service at the end of the service where I'm going to open up uh, three prayer requests for people just to stand right where they're at and pray. And I know that not everybody's comfortable in doing that, but we're going to uh, do what Jesus calls us to do is to make his church a house of prayer. And we're going to spend some time as we close our service together living out the truths that Paul has taught us. But let me go ahead and ask for God's blessing on our time and we'll get into our text this morning. Father God, we do come before you. We come before you in this activity of prayer. First of all, as a reminder that we are desperate for you in our lives. Lord, if we were to take any amount of time right now, we would recognize the absolute dependence we have on you our ability to breathe, our ability to live and to act, our ability to communicate with one another, our ability to live life and, and to uh, be who you've called us to be is dependent on who you are, giving us the strength and the abilities, enabling us to live out this calling you've given us. We're dependent on you that, Lord, apart from you as believers, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, even if we wanted to, we couldn't do the ministry you've called us to. We couldn't reach out to the people that you may be leading us to unless it was by the work of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, as we are reminded today of the utter importance of prayer, let us live that out in our lives. Let us see from Paul's great example that prayer was something that was um, not just a part of his life, but it was embedded in the very fabric of who he was. Lord, we need to confess our prayerlessness to you this morning. 
we have come so acquainted and so familiar with your blessings and your mercies and your graces that days go by, maybe weeks, months, where we have not approached your throne of grace and prayer with confidence. And so, Lord, I pray that today would be a day, it would be a marker that would, would change how we view life and how we view our interaction with you, and that we would begin to have active and frequent conversations with you, that we would just open our hearts to you in the privacy of our own uh, lives, that we would just begin to speak out what concerns us, speak out the things that, that you have called us to bring before you in prayer. Thank you for a text that drives us as people and drives us as a church to be reminded of this incredible truth so that we might be ready in all ways in following you, including to be ready people who are active in prayer. Now, Lord, I pray that you'd go before me and speak through me in a powerful way we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here's our text before us, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Corey Ten Boom, the wonderful Christian model, the wonderful Christian woman who followed Christ even in the difficult days of Nazi Germany, uh, struggling with the persecution that would come uh, during that time in her homeland of Germany, Corey Tenboom would would come to realize and know the importance of prayer in the life of a Christian under fire. She said this once: "Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is prayer your steering wheel or spare tire?" Well, what does she mean by that quote? That quote became the title of my message because it gets down to the core of the role that prayer plays in our life. As we head out into the parking lot today after the service into our cars, we will recognize that our cars are equipped with these two things, a steering wheel and a spare tire. But what she begins to ask is, while both are a part of the car, both have very different reasons for existence. The steering wheel is what gets you from point A to point B. There's not a moment in time as a driver within the car, hopefully, will pray to this end, that your hands are never on that steering wheel. That steering wheel is what keeps you going on the straight and narrow, if you will. That steering wheel allows you to navigate and to be protected from the things that may come into your um, area of driving. The steering wheel is needed every moment that you're in the car. If you're moving, you need your hands on the steering wheel. But the spare tire, while needed in the car, is something that plays a secondary role. Some of you have never touched the spare tire in your car. Some of you have no idea where the spare tire is. 
Still others of you recognize that a spare tire is needed in a moment of emergency. But in that moment of emergency, when you hear the flapping of a blown tire, and as you pull off to the side, your heart and mind begin to race saying, I don't even know if I know how to change the tire. I'm not even sure how I'm supposed to get the tire out from where it's being held. I'm not sure what to do. So what we many times will do is we'll try to call someone else to fix it. We'll begin to try to figure out and thumb around, if you will, and fumble with the idea of how to get the tire changed. What Corey Tenboom is saying is that your prayer life can be classified or characterized by this question. Does prayer, does your prayer life direct you? Does it guide you in every facet of your life? Is it something that you have your hands on every moment you wake up? Every moment of the day, you can't take your hands off of it knowing that if you stop praying, your life can fall apart at the seams. Is it a steering wheel? Or is it a spare tire? Something that you find yourself using only in times of emergency. You forget that it's there. You're not even sure how to use it from time to time. And you find yourself struggling when you need to use it. But you're all thumbs when when you're trying to figure out, well, how do I get it there? For some of us, we look at prayer as the Beatles shared in their song, help, help, I need somebody, help, not just anybody, help, I need somebody to help. And so what we do is we find ourselves in a point of of problem. Maybe we we find out that there needs to be a follow-up medical uh, appointment. Maybe we find out that a marriage is falling apart around us. Maybe our child has done something that we never saw coming. Maybe depression has come upon us. Maybe the finances aren't where they need to be. And what do we do? As if there's a flat tire in our lives. We throw up this prayer. Lord, help me. I'm not sure what you can do, Lord, but help. Lord, I'm not sure how to talk to you, but help. And we are told in our passage today, That if we want to be ready in all things, prayer must be a place that we are ready to use as the steering wheels of our lives, not the spare tires. So a couple of things I want to share with you this morning before we get into our outline. Paul starts this passage and he says, finally, brothers, pray for us. Let's just stop there for a moment. Pray for us. A couple things I want you to know about this phrase, pray for us, that maybe is something that we already knew, but it's a good reminder for us. First of all, what, what, prayer, what we see about prayer is that everybody needs it. Everybody needs it. Write that somewhere. You've got plenty of space in your outline sheet. Just write that down somewhere. All of us need prayer. When Paul says, finally, brothers, pray for us, he's requesting prayer on his behalf. Now, wait a minute. Why in the world would a super saint, as gifted and as talented as Paul was, why would he need prayer? Let's ask this question for a moment. Paul, the great missionary of the faith. Paul, 
the great apostle of the faith. Paul, the one who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Paul, the one who met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul, the one who had incredible experiences with God. Paul, the one who saw thousands upon thousands of people come to know Jesus Christ. Why would this great and gifted man need prayer? Because he's a sinner saved by grace. And every one of us, no matter our gifting, no matter our maturity, no matter our experiences, no matter our success, all of us need prayer. So it begs the question this morning, who have you asked to pray for you? Who are you aware of in your life today that is praying you through the day, that is praying you through your week? that is praying for you in all manners of time. Paul says, I don't want to close out this letter without knowing that there's a church in Thessalonica that is praying for me, that is lifting me up in prayer because I need all the prayers I can get. There is no greater encouragement than when someone texts me, hey, I'm praying for you who puts their arm around me and says, I'm praying for you. We all need people who will pray for us. If you don't know of someone that will pray for you, find someone. Find a trustworthy and reliable person who will lift you up in prayers. Paul needed it. I need it. We all need it. We all need someone who will pray. Number two, when he says pray for us, that word pray is found in the present tense. What that means is, what he's saying is, is pray and continually pray for us. What that means is that prayer isn't a one and done type activity. But prayer is something that needs to happen on an ongoing basis. Paul shares this example of how to pray in in 1 Thessalonians, when we started this letter back in January, this is what he said in verse 2. The second verse of this letter to this people, he says the following, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Prayer is a continual thing. In fact, Paul would tell us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, that we are to pray without ceasing. The idea here is that prayer is continually on our mind. Now, I want to explain that because when I was younger and I would hear a preacher preach on that, I just felt devastated. I barely prayed each day. I barely prayed once a week as a kid. And now the pastor's saying, I need to pray all the time. Doesn't the pastor know there's time for TV, there's time for games, there's time for work? How, how am I supposed to be praying at all times? Well, if we look at the activity of prayer simply being a time where we get away and spend time alone, then that will never happen. We would have to become some sort of of monk who who confines himself away from the world and dedicates him to that activity of prayer. What Paul is saying is that we are in a state of readiness when it comes to prayer. And so at all times, in all occasions, we are ready to pray. And so when we see someone we lift up a prayer. Lord, I pray for so-and-so. Thinking about them. Wondering how they're doing. Lord, be with them. 
See something on their Facebook page. Lord, uh, this looks like they've got an important thing going on. Lord, Lord, I pray that you will work through them. Different things that come to mind. Paul says, every time you guys came to my mind, I would take time to pray. Doesn't need to be long, doesn't need to be drawn out, doesn't need to be filled with all kinds of flowing rhetoric, but just a continual state of lifting people up in prayer. Needs to be constant. Notice that uh, Paul then tells us that prayer should be done no matter the maturity or age of the believer. Paul, remember, the gifted, great apostle Paul, says, finally, brothers, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the church of Thessalonica. Who are those people? Very young believers. Infant believers in many ways. Believers who hadn't gotten their lives all figured out. Believers who were struggling with sin. Believers who were trying to figure out what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. Paul, the great apostle Paul, mature apostle Paul, put together apostle Paul, doctrinaire apostle Paul. All of this greatness of who Paul is. And Paul says to this young group of Christians who haven't figured it out, who are still struggling to understand what the Christian life is all about, he says to them, I want you to pray for me. And so maybe today you're like, well, I'm not the Apostle Paul. I don't know my gifts. I don't know how to speak boldly uh, for the Lord. I don't know how to lead as Paul did. What can I do? Paul says, you may not understand anything else about Christianity. You may be so new to the faith, but what you can do that will have huge impacts on the kingdom of God is you can pray. So Paul says, all of us should pray. Next, notice The word prayer, or to pray, literally means to beg, or to implore, or beseech. The idea here is it's a strenuous activity. Paul says in the book of Colossians that Epaphras, the pastor of the Colossian church, was wrestling in prayer for his people. The idea here is that prayer isn't something we just simply mouth words uh, to uh, some unseen deity, but that we wrestle recognizing that the things that we pray for, pray for are important. They have an impact in the lives of the people of whom we're praying for. And so we want to do all that we can. We want to wrestle with this idea of, of seeking the Lord, asking the Lord to minister to those who are in need. Finally, Paul uses the word finally. And while that would seem that all that Paul is doing is landing the plane, getting the the letter ready for a closing, it would seem better, and some translations put it this way, that what Paul is doing is tying in the importance of prayer because of what he has shared beforehand. So what he's saying is, is all right, Now that I've taught you that persecution is here and that the spirit of lawlessness is already in the world and we've got the lawless one coming and because we don't know the hour or day of the Lord's coming and because we are called to live upright and holy lives, because of all that and this calling to stand firm and to hold on to the truths of Scriptures, because we've got to do all this, don't forget to pray. You won't ever be able to do those things unless we're praying for one another, unless we're seeking the Lord on each other's behalf. 
we need to pray. Because of what Christians face on a day-by-day basis. Paul, in one half of a sentence, gives us a mouthful on what it means to pray. But then in the rest of the passage, he tells us what we should pray for. There are three requests I want you to see this morning. Paul wants us to pray, not just in moments of emergency, but every day and every moment of our lives, in our prayers, here's what Paul wants us to be asking for. First of all, we need to ask God to give us opportunities, opportunities to share the gospel. Notice verse 1, the latter part. Pray for us in what way? Paul says that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as it happened among you. So the first thing that Paul wants us to pray for is that the word of the Lord, the message of God, the gospel, will speed ahead. Literally, uh, this phrase could be put this way in the original Greek, that the gospel would run, that it would run. What does Paul mean by that? We should seek God when it comes to, write this down, the success of the gospel. We need to seek the Lord so that the gospel will be successful. That when the word of the Lord leaves our mouths, that it would be effective. Paul prays this on numerous occasions. In Ephesians 6, verse 19, he says, Pray on my behalf that the words that may be given to me And when I open my mouth and make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel of which I am an ambassador, pray for me that I might open my mouth and that the word might be declared boldly. Paul says, listen, I need prayer because what I'm going to do is I'm going to do what God has called me to do, what God's called all of us to do, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and brought us into his wonderful light. And when I share those words, I want you to pray that I would do so boldly and that in that boldness, people might hear a clear presentation of the gospel. Paul put it this way in the fourth chapter of Colossians. Pray that God may open to us a door for the word, that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. You see, Paul was concerned as a proclaimer of the good news of Jesus Christ. How would that message go forth? And what Paul is wanting is Paul is wanting two things with regards to the success of the gospel. Paul, first of all, wants to see the gospel go forth with great speed, with great speed. In Paul's days, his letters and the delivery of those letters were contingent upon the courier who was going to send them, right? They didn't have the post office. They didn't have FedEx. They didn't have UPS. They had these couriers. Most probably didn't even have horses. And so they would be given uh, this letter, Paul's letter, the first and second letter to the Thessalonians. And Paul would finish writing it and somehow uh, uh, procure himself a, a courier, a young man who would go from Athens and do the long trek to the northern part of Greece, to Thessalonica. He would hand him the letter and he would say, in all haste, get this letter to the people in Thessalonica, to the church that meets there. And so he would say, hey, I don't want you to dilly-dally. 
I don't want you to take some time off midway through the journey. I want you as quickly as you can from point A to point B to get to where you need to be. That is your job, is to deliver in great haste the message that is there. What Paul is saying is, as I hold a courier, courier, courier um, responsible for the speed of one person getting the letter from the other person, I am asking God that the speed of the gospel would run, that it would get to where it needs to. Why? Because Paul recognizes something that we must recognize. Our time is short. Paul has just finished telling the people that the man of lawlessness is coming, that Jesus Christ is coming back. And we know that for each day that God gives us on this earth, that we have a moment in time, an opportunity for the gospel to go forth in our lives. And we recognize that when we share the gospel, that it doesn't always get received the first time. And so we need that gospel to move quickly in the lives of people because we don't know if we have another moment. I live under this idea or umbrella since I was 14 years of age. Imprinted in my heart and mind is the recognition because of the death of my brother at 16 years of age that none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And so what Paul is saying is, I don't know how much more time I have, and so I want this gospel that I'm proclaiming, this gospel that I'm, I'm boldly sharing to go out as quickly as possible. But it doesn't just have to do with its speed. It has to do with getting to where it needs to go. The courier, again, remember, needs to run with all haste. So there's two, if you will, characteristics of a good messenger. First of all, one who can move from point A to point B very quickly. That's why I would have not been one of those guys. They would have looked at me and said, hey, it'll take him four years to get to Thessalonica. Not going to work, all right? So we need someone who's fast, but we also need someone who's going to find the location of where the letter needs to go. No GPS, no Google Maps. This courier is going to have to be able to know where to go. And so Paul says the only way the gospel is going to get to where it needs to is we need to pray pray to God that the message will move quickly and that it will get to the right places. You see, Paul had faith that the courier would be able to know from Athens how to get to Thessalonica. And once he got into Thessalonica, how to find the church that met there. To hand them the message because it would be of no value for someone to receive this letter and not understand who Paul is, who this Jesus is, and what Jesus has called them to. Paul had written a letter to a group of people who needed the letter. And our prayer needs to be not only that the gospel would speed forth, but that it would hit the lives of people who need to hear it. The lives of people who are going to be changed by it. And so we need to stop and we need to pray, Lord, as I share the good news, as I live out the life of Christ in my workplace and in my school, Lord, I pray that that message will speed forth, that it would run in the lives of people, but that it would hit the right lives. Lord, that it would hit the lives of the people in the right moment that they might respond to the gospel. Let me put it this way. Many of us do not experience Life change in, our, in, in the lives of others because we have ceased to pray for the gospel to go before us. And so we say, well, why am I not seeing the yields 
of a fruitful life? Why am I not seeing the yields of people coming to know Jesus? Why am I not getting opportunities? Why does it seem that, that there's never an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ? Let me go back and ask the question. Paul says, if I don't have you pray, if I don't pray for these opportunities, then I will hit closed door upon closed door. So we need to pray. We need to ask God to go before us. We need to ask God to not allow the gospel to hit dead ends, not to fall upon deaf ears, but to hit the lives of people that need it desperately. It talks about the success of the gospel. Write this down. It also talks about the submission to the gospel. So Paul says, listen, I want the gospel to be successful, to speed ahead, and now he says, I want it to be honored. The idea of honored, and he says, as has happened to you, Paul moves from the gospel to the response of the message. And he says, all right, now that it's sped throughout the world, now that it's gone to the right places, and by the way, just as a, as a point of, of reference, nowhere, we're talking about couriers in the, in the first century world. We live in a time and an age through satellite TV, radio, and the World Wide Web that the gospel goes forth through all four corners of the world instantaneously. We live during an amazing time. It is absolutely amazing. Uh, every once in a while, uh, David Wood, our, our uh, website guy here on staff, will, will tell us where the website is having an impact meaning who, who's on our website. And you would think that our website would only be impacted by people in the Fox Valley area. But then we find out that uh, it's being reached to all 50 states. There are people from all 50 states visiting our website for one, point, one reason or another. And then beyond that, we start looking and we're saying, wait a minute. We're seeing now as people are reaching out, in fact, one of the largest areas right now that are downloading sermons from Village Bible Church is the country of Germany. I don't know anybody from Germany. I'm like David Hasselhoff, not real big in America, but big in Germany. That's not funny. You shouldn't laugh at that. The gospel is having an effect in ways that I don't even know. And we live during a time where we have the opportunity to see all four corners of this incredible globe to hear the gospel. Right now, in a far-off flung island of New Guinea, Ben and Missy Hatton are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who have never heard of God. We live during an amazing time. And so what do we pray for? We pray that it gets there, and it gets there quickly. And then we pray that when that message gets there, that people submit to it, that it would be honored. That phrase honored there literally means to be admired, accepted, extolled, received with joy and thanks. So what God is saying, or what Paul's saying is that we pray to God so that the message will go forth and that people will receive it. That they will be faithful to receive the world as it has the word as it has been taught. Just as the Thessalonians did. Thessalonians were sinful, depraved people. The gospel is preached. They turn from their idols and they turn to Jesus Christ, the one true and living God. And Paul says, just as you received it, my prayer and the prayer of each of every one of us is just as we have received Christ, just as it has transformed our lives, let it now transform the lives of people around us. Prayer changes things. Now let me say this, and you may not agree with this, but I'm preaching and you're not, so I get to say it. 
We live in a world that seemingly is out of control. Uh, in fact, one person came up to me today and said, our weather's like our world, a mess. That was a good way of putting it. And as Christians, we want to see the world cleaned up. We want to see our country cleaned up. We want to see our world and our country turned back right side up. And, and we turn to different things to try to change it. First, we turn to the White House and we say, hey, if we get the right person in the White House, America will change. But then we find out that doesn't work. So we turn to the courthouse and we say, if we get the right person on the Supreme Court, if we get the right people in those robes, then the laws will change and things will get better. But we're learning that isn't the truth. And so then we turn to the schoolhouse, and we look to the schoolhouse, and the White House didn't work, and the courthouse didn't work, and so we've got to change it. Let's throw prayer back in school, and let's make sure that we teach creation over evolution, and that will change society. That will change things. And what we're learning is that doesn't change. Charles Ware put it this way. If we want revival in American, America again, it must begin with prayer in God's house. We've got our priorities all messed up. We're trying to change the trajectory of people and nations without God doing the changing. It begins with prayer. Paul says we need to pray that the gospel would run. Is that a part of your prayer? Number two, we need to pray for God to remove the obstacles that hinder the gospel. Verse two, Paul says, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Now let's stop there. Paul sees two hindrances to the gospel. The first one is wicked and evil men. And what he says is, listen, one way that the gospel is kept from running is that people are getting in the way, wicked and evil people. The picture here is of a runner on a track. And, and the runner's running in his lane on the track, and someone comes out from the stands and runs into that person, causing them to stumble, knocking them down, keeping them from being able to finish the race. Well, who are these people? Paul says they're wicked and they're evil men. Paul is no doubt speaking of uh, situations that were happening as he was penning these words. We know that in the city of Corinth, just outside of the city of Athens, Paul is writing this second letter, and as he, he is enduring all kinds of trouble, all types of persecution, and here's the amazing thing. Most scholars and historians believe that the one who's hurting him the most are people that were near and dear to him. The same people that he once was arm in arm with in destroying the gospel of Jesus Christ when he lived under the name of Saul. And he says, I know these people. And they hate Jesus, and they hate me, and they hate anybody who seeks to, to uh, preach this, and they seek, these men and women seek to destroy it. Now listen, this is not a prayer of self-preservation. This isn't a prayer for Paul to seek comfort. Paul was well acquainted with trouble and persecution. But this is one of the few times that Paul says this hindrance is too great, and it needs God to stop it. Why? Because they were wicked and evil men. That word wicked literally means people who are out of joint. They're out of place. Literally, um, they're, they're not in the place that they should be. That they've gone outside of, of the norm of, of who they should be. This speaks of a, a group of people who have been designed and created to love God and to, and to live uh, under the purposes of God. 
to see God as holy and right, to worship him and his son Jesus Christ. And these people are so bent out of shape that they have hatred for the very God who gives them life and breath. They're out of joints. He says they're evil. Literally means they're a malignant force. They're aggressive. Now, uh, we don't experience a lot of that. I'm here to tell you, as I studied these two phrases, I think we are hard-pressed to find a lot of people here in America who would even fall under that example. Paul's use of the two words evil and wicked compounded together speaks of such a gross group of people, angry group of people, harsh group of people, that it would be hard in the 300 million people who call America their home to find them. So where do we find these people? Are they here today? They are. Probably no more clearly seen than what's taking place in some other places around the world. In Iraq, right now. If you're a Christian, and there's not many Christians, since the war in Iraq started, the invasion of Iraq uh, in the earlier part of the decade started, Iraqi Christians have seen their population go from about two million people down to a couple hundred thousand. They've been decimated. They've been decimated in a couple different ways. First of all, they've been killed by Muslim extremists, or they have been uh, uh, caused to flee their homes and live in some sort of refugee camp outside of Iraq. Why? Because if you're known to be a Christian, here's what would happen to you. On your wall of your home, and this is from an Iraqi home in northern Iraq, that symbol there is the Arabic Arabic letter N for Nazarene a follower of the Nazarene Jesus Christ. The phraseology that's next to it is to get out or die. And what we need to recognize is is that while we may have incredible freedoms and while we may have a, a melting pot of a society that people may not like Jesus, they may even speak against Jesus, what Paul is saying is that these wicked and evil men are people who are devoted to the extermination of God and the extermination of Christ and anyone who proclaims his name. Listen, these people will go as far. And I know this. My, my father's homeland is this area. My father's cousins and, and, and relatives share stories, horrific stories, of Christians whose children are ca- taken captive. They're taken from them. And they're delivered back to them, boiled to death put on a plate of rice and told, if you don't leave, the rest of your family will experience the same thing. Wicked and evil men. Read just recently, two weeks ago, Reuters News, this is not Christian World International, Reuters News said in China, a pastor and his wife were killed because they would not give the membership roles of their house church. Think about that. They protected a pastor, Tim and Amanda. The government comes and says, we want to know everybody who attends Village Bible Church. We want to know right now, and if you don't tell us, you're going to die. Can I just be honest with you? I love you. And and that's not a, I, I know it sounds funny, but that's not a joke. I mean, really? I mean, I would want to save myself, and if, if I didn't want to save myself, I want to save the life of my wife. 
And these men and women recognized that the gospel of Jesus Christ was more important and the lives of the people that they ministered to were more important that they would lose their lives. By who? Wicked and evil men. Which begs the question, if that's how people are living right now, why aren't we praying more? If we have such freedom, why don't we pray for those that are seeing the gospel being hindered from them? We need to pray because irrational and ungodly people are doing all they can to destroy the gospel. But Paul gives a second group of people. Notice he says, not all have faith. This picture is in contrast to the wicked and evil men. So there's wicked and evil men, but what about all these other people, the people we go to school with, the people we go to work with, the neighbors that we have, who, who, who maybe uh, aren't for the gospel, but, but they're not per se wanting to kill us. These are the ones who don't all have faith. And we need to pray that God would, would allow us in the opportunities that we have to proclaim the gospel to them. And it may not be, listen, it may not be a full-fledged gospel presentation all at once. It may be little by little, through example upon example, of us living quiet and peaceable lives in, 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 in full view of them, that they might see. I had the great opportunity, I shared this last week, to speak at career day at the local middle school. And my neighbor, two doors down, was one of the aides that was supervising the room when I was speaking. And one of the questions was, is how does a pastor, junior high kid, I'm telling you, doesn't go to church, he says, how does a pastor uh, uh, live one way in the church and another way in the world? He says, how do you balance that? How do you, do you live all your time like you live at church? And my response was, is listen, I will never be a good pastor if my neighbor sees me one way and the church sees me another way. And I said, so my hope and my prayer is that neighbor, and I said her name, I said that she would see Jesus Christ being lived out in my life in every facet of my day. Then I've been a pastor to my neighbor. And I looked at her straight in the eye when I said it, as if to ask the question, have I done that? Am I missing that in your life? Have you not seen Christ lived out in me? Because if you haven't, I've failed. Because she does not have faith. And my job is to help put faith into her life and to show her the faithfulness of God. Because not all have faith, but Paul finishes and says, but God is faithful, and God's people should be faithful. And so we need to live that out for those who are watching. So Paul finishes up and he says, the third thing I want you to pray for is not only that the gospel would run and that God would remove the obstacles along the way, but that God would instill in us optimism about the gospel. Let me give you a quick story, a follow-up of the pastor and his wife that died recently in China. It created such an uproar amongst the people of God, that they began to openly and boldly pronounce Christ in that region. So much that for the first time in communist China, the premier of the communist party came out and said, 
that the government has to do all that it can to stop the spread of Christianity. Listen to how powerful this is. It is the first time that the Communist Party in China has ever even shared publicly the word Christianity. Why? Because what we're learning is that the Christian church in China will be the largest population of Christians throughout the entire world by 2020. People are coming to know Jesus. And so, yeah, they're being uh, knocked down and beat up. Yes, their lives are being taken from them. But God is faithful. And when we pray, we will recognize and know that though life may be hard for us as Christians, God is faithful to see his gospel go forth. How does Paul say that? Paul says, listen, God was faithful enough to change your life, Thessalonians, You people who were depraved, you people who were sinful, you people who were on your way to hell, God saw fit to save you, and if you think that God's best days are behind him, listen, the best is yet to come. God is saving people all the time. And either we're going to be a part of it, or we're going to sit idly by living our comfortable American lives, and we're going to miss out on the opportunities. Listen, God, Paul says, we have confidence in the Lord. We have confidence that God's going to continue to do his work, not only in our lives, but in the lives of you as people. We have confidence that the Lord will direct our hearts, and the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ will be a part of our lives. Paul has full optimism that everything is going to go just as God planned. And so what that does is that instills in him the ability to pray with confidence. He's fully optimistic. He's not worried about the election. He's not worried who's going to fill Scalia's seat on the Supreme Court. He's not worried about what's going on in Target's bathrooms. He has full confidence that God will win the war. And what he says is, I've already won it. And because I've already won it, God says, I want my people to pray. So that's what I want us to do this morning. We've got some moments before church is done here. And I want us to pray about three things. And I'm going to invite you to be a part of it. And I'll close our time after a little bit. But I want us as a, as a group to take some time and pray, first of all, that God would give us opportunities. That he would give this church and us as people opportunities. Number two, that God would remove the obstacles from the Fox Valley area for us reaching the world, for the obstacles that keep uh, the gospel from the work that our missionaries are doing, for the gospel work that's being done in places where people's lives are at stake, that God would remove the obstacles. And finally, that we would pray these things with such a confidence that God is winning, and so are we, because the gospel cannot be chained. It cannot be squelched. It cannot be put down. The gospel is running, and we need to pray that it will continue to. Father God, as we close this time, I pray that, as Corey Timboom said, that prayer would become our steering wheel, that it would direct us, that it would engage every part of our lives, and that we would see you as a God who is faithful, a God that is strong, a God that is able to do more than we could ever ask for or imagine. Lord, I pray that your gospel would go forth in our lives, that it would impact the Fox Valley community. Lord, that it would go out in the lives of our missionaries. 
to the two dozen uh, missionary partners that we have from all places in this world, that your message would not be hindered, but that it would go forth in power and strength. And Lord, I pray that we would live lives because we have a God who hears and answers prayer, that we would be a, a people who are optimistic about your message and your truth, even if it means our world gets darker. Lord, that we would be a people ready, willing, and able to pray. That we would pray as we gather together in large groups, in small groups, that we would pray for one another, lifting our cares before the God who loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. And I'll go, we pray, Lord, that you would go before us now as we leave this place in fellowship with one another, that we would be a powerful witness in our neighborhoods, our schools, and our workplaces, so that people may see you in all that we do. To you be the glory and honor in your church and in this world, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.